Okay, good evening everyone. Tonight's class is titled Tonight's class is titled The Difference Between Godliness and Klipa. It's a very, very fundamental and important class. And it's a very good guide in our life. What should we do? What should we not do? At the end of tonight, hopefully, we'll have a good sense of direction. We learned previously that whatever exists in godliness, whatever the makeup is of the godly soul, Hashem has made exactly similar the animalistic soul. And we explained that that was necessary for free choice. You could only have free choice if things are equal. So we have the animalistic soul, the godly soul, and the tragedy we explained could be that if someone is going to think, speak, or do something negative, then their body has been taken over by negativity, their body has been taken over by klipa, by the opposite of godliness. So again, if we allow the animalistic soul, the thought, speech, and action of the animalistic soul to take us over, then we're controlled, unfortunately, by negative energy. That's what we got up to last week. You make that sound so simple. How do you not make that sound simple? You want me to make it sound complicated? No, I'm not looking for complicated. I'm, I'm looking for. Yeah. It, it, it's, it? so, yeah, it's, it's so easy to avoid. Mm -hmm. Tell me again, I'm not understanding. You're saying that. Is my head sound simple? Yeah. You, you're saying that you're allowing this, you're allowing this, and you're allowing this. And when you're allowing this, this is what happens. So how do you stop from allowing this so that that doesn't happen? Let me say, first of all, I'm human and I fully understand what you're asking. You asked a good question. You're asking how could we control our thoughts, speech, and action. And I can't answer you until we finish a few more chapters in Tanya. We will learn a method how. But as of now, we're only discussing. First, we're discussing, just like to be a doctor, first you have to know how the body works. And so, you that and you learn that in school. So, so too, if we want to understand how to work with, if we want to know the cure for the soul, we first need to know how the soul works. And that's what we're doing in the, in the last few chapters of Tanya. We're learning the makeup of the soul. Once we have that clear, we'll be able to get guidance how to deal with it. So we will answer your question, but not this week. It's a good question. Not tonight. <laughs> well, not tonight. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. So... In order for us to really be, be able to understand what comes from the godly soul, what comes from the animalistic soul, we need to know what is godly, what is not godly. And we're going to learn something drastic tonight, but let's, let's share together and, and I think we're going to come out with a good understanding of what God wants from us. We're in our handout, we're on page number one, in the middle of the third paragraph. In the middle of the paragraph it says, It is these that constitute all the deeds that are under the sun. In your red Tanya, okay, in your red Tanya, we're on page 24, 
And again, we're in the right, the left-hand column, about ten lines from the top. It is these that constitute all the deeds that are under the sun. If you have it, if you don't mind raising your hands, I know we're together. Um, if you don't have it, if you could ask your friend. In the handout, we're in the third paragraph, three lines from the bottom. It, it is these that constitute all the deeds. Um, it's on page number one. Um, Liz, on, on, on the page you were holding before, the previous one. On the it is these that constitute all the deeds that are done under the sun, which are all vanity and striving after the wind. Very strong words. Anything that is coming from the animalistic soul falls under vanity and striving after the wind. Now, if you don't mind sharing with me, let's look at a quote from the Tanakh in your handout number two. Number two, it says, I saw all the deeds that were done under the sun, and behold, everything is vanity and frustration. A very strong quote that we learned that everything under the sun, HaKol Tachas Hashem, everything is hakol hevel v'rais ruach. It's all vanity and frustration. The whole world is full of vanity and frustration. What does that mean? So, on a simple level, it just means life is frustrating, right? We always you tell kids, and life is not fair. That's made. But the Zohar comes and tells us something very sharp. Raos ruach in Hebrew can be translated as Raos, breaking, Ruach, the spirit. Ruach, there's a camp called Camp Ruach. You ever heard of that? Camp Ruach. Ruach is the spirit. It's excitement. It's life. Life is Torah. So the Zohar says that everything, let, let's retranslate the Pasuk. Let's look in quote number two and translate the end in our new translation. Translating the end, Ra'os Ruach, meaning to break the spirit. Let's see how we would read it. I saw all the deeds that were done under the sun, and behold, everything is breaking the spirit of God. Everything in this world, naturally, is trying to break our connection to Hashem. This is <coughs> quite clear. Let's, let's see back in the Tanya now. It is these that constitute all the deeds that are done under the sun, which are all vanity and striving after the wind, wind as interpreted in the Zohar, Bishalach, in the sense of a ruination, ruining the spirit, the spirit being a reference to godliness. So everything in this world naturally is trying to ruin our spirit. Everything in this world naturally is trying to stop us from connecting to God. Just a few moments ago, before I came here, I have a five-volume set called Stories of the Baal Shem Tov. It's quite scary. <laughs> One of the volumes is all about the Satan, all about all Satan and all the different things he tried to do to people during the times of the Baal Shem Tov and how the Baal Shem Tov saved those people. Everything in this world seemingly is against us, as we're going to learn momentarily in the Tanya, that, and to quote, this world... Therefore, we'll see this soon inside, but it says, Therefore, all mundane affairs are severe and evil, and wicked men prevail. In this world, seemingly, evil 
prevails. Let's continue on. So too, back in the Tanya, all utterances and thoughts which are not directed towards God and His will and service. Any thought or anything we say that is not directed towards Hashem is similarly going to be something that is breaking godliness. For this is the meaning of Sitra Achara, the other side. You know, there's many names for evil. Many names. I'll give you some examples. Or actually, could anyone here shout out examples of how we refer to evil? Well, we call it Ra, we call it bad, we call it Tame, impurity. We call evil Klipa, the husk, the shell. But the Yetzirah, evil inclination, evil temptation, negativity. But one of the words that evil is called is Sitra Achara, the other side. Simple. The, those words, Sitra Achara, Sitra Achara really encapsulate what, what is unholy. Anything that is not godly. The other side. The second you get to the other side, Sitra Achara, it's not holy anymore. Let's see that inside. This is the meaning of Sitra Achara, the other side, not the side of holiness. Well, wait, isn't Sitra Achara created by Hashem as well? So it has like a drop of holiness? I love that question. I'm going to deal with it in a few moments. Very good question. Great question. The question is that obviously everything in this world has holiness or else it wouldn't have been created. Let's hold it for a moment. For the holy side is nothing but the indwelling and extension of the holiness of the Holy One. Blessed be He. What is holiness? Holiness is something where Hashem is within you. Hashem is not within you, it's not holy. What does Hashem dwell inside of? Continues the Tanya. And He dwells only on such a thing that nullifies itself completely to Him. You want Hashem within you? You have to allow space for Him. Right? If a cup is full of water, you can't put anything else inside of it. The same thing as a human. If we're full of, our, if we're full of ourselves, literally, as the Gemara and Sota talks at great length, if we are haughty, we think how great we are, there's no room for Hashem inside. So, holiness could only come into something that makes itself a vessel for godliness. Anything that is not holy is against holiness. So we had a great question. The question was asked, doesn't evil have holiness inside of it? Doesn't the opposite of holiness also have godliness inside? Nothing in this world could exist without God. Does anyone want to present an answer? It's a great question. How could there be evil in this world? Obviously there's godliness inside of it. So certainly there's godliness inside of it. But the godliness is completely concealed. To give you just an example that the Tanya is going to give later on. The Tanya compares klipa, evil, to a zona. A zona is a harlot. Is a what? A harlot. 
Maybe. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the example is given, the king hired Azona to try and seduce his son. Why? Because he wants to test his son. See, is he a healthy, responsible person? Now this person knows that she has a job here. Her job is, she has to try as hard as she can to tempt this man to sin. And if she doesn't try as hard as she can, then she's failed. She hasn't, she hasn't tested out the man. At the same time, she knows that if this person falls to temptation, then there's a big tragedy in the kingdom. So on the one hand, she has to do her job, but at the same time, she doesn't want that she should be successful. And that is klipa. That is, when we talk about the opposite of holiness, the opposite of holiness, of course it has godliness inside of it, but it's going to do its job fully. Hashem has, so to say, hired it to do that, it's going to do it. But it will be disappointed if we fall through to its temptation. Did that answer the question? So, Hashem only can dwell inside of something that allows Hashem inside. Klepat Noga. Klepat Noga. We'll get to that momentarily. Yeah, thank you. What allows Hashem inside? So let's continue inside of the Tanya. Either actually, as in the case of the angels above, you know, in the Siddur, and in our Siddur, you could look later on, on page 40, there's a full section right before the Shema where we talk about the angels. Uh, we talk how the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full, full of His glory. And the Yofanim and the Holy Chayot with a mighty sound rise towards the Seraphim and facing them offer praise and say, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. They chant sweet melodies, etc. The sitter every day, again that's on page 40, we continue to page 41, we talk about the angels. Angels are completely, completely nullified to God's will. Angels are completely, they'll follow whatever Hashem says. So angels certainly are godly. But let's continue on. Or potentially, as in the case of every Jew down below. Every Jew down below in this world has the ability to allow God within him. Not everything in this world has that ability. There are certain things in this world that are completely forbidden. There are things in this world that were created with impurity within them. For example, the fruits of the first three years of a tree are forbidden to be eaten. There's nothing you can do about it. For example, if we go ahead and we, and we breed two animals together that we, weren't, that we weren't allowed to do, so that child from, that, from those two animals is spiritually an unhealthy child. If we go ahead and we plant a vine together with a vegetable, which the Torah says you're not allowed to combine different types of vegetation. So again, what we've brought up from that planting is unhealthy spiritually. So there are things in this world that are spiritually unhealthy. But a Jew has the ability 
to allow God within him. And now how do we know this? What's the proof for this? What prayer does it What prayer did millions of Jews die saying? Shema. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. What does Shema mean? Shema means God. It's, it's your world. I'm giving, you, I'm giving myself up to you. Now if we look throughout history, the people who were killed for the sake of God's name were not only the scholars, the rabbis. They weren't only the people who understood why they should be killed. There were many people during the time of the Inquisition who perhaps didn't really practice Judaism, but when they were said, are you a Jew? And will you stray from your Jewish religion? They said no, without understanding why. Everyone know the famous words that Daniel Pearl died with? Yeah. What were the my words? My father is a Jew. My mother is a Jew. I'm a Jew. My father is a Jew. My mother is a Jew. I am a Jew. He didn't say his mother is a Jew. No, he did not. And that was an indication of what uh, uh, Hazarim, the Muslims, were that executed him. They didn't even realize that they didn't even ask the right question. But nonetheless, he died with the words, I'm a Jew. So every person, no matter how far they stray, is as connected as all of us. We all have the same ability. We all have the same potential. We all have the ability to be a complete vessel for godliness. And that is what we're saying here. Not every Jew, it may, maybe that potential is not revealed within every Jew, but it's certainly existent. Either actually, as in the case of angels above, which are actually nullified to God and doing His will, or potentially, as in the case of every Jew down below, having the capacity to nullify himself completely to the Holy One, blessed be He, through, through allowing Himself to be killed, for the sanctification of God. So every Jew is a complete vessel for godliness. It's an interesting choice of words, nullify, out negate. It's, and you use the word vessel. It all means the same thing. You are nothing. You are a vessel for Hashem. Correct. And that's what we're saying. If you're not a vessel, Hashem a, can't come. That's a tzaddik, in a, in a sense. So... If I were saying a tzaddik, then it's not for all of us. Because the Tani says we're not all, we can't all be a tzaddik. Well, a tzaddik is one who perhaps has done a pretty good job of that. The, the Bane and me all struggle with that. Yeshua, could you look in your Tanya and please tell me the words right after the angels above? <laughs> Where am I looking? Oh. Uh, he dwells only on such a thing that abnegates itself completely to him. Complete, continue. Either actually, as in the case of the angels above, or potentially. Ah, that's what I wanted you to read. Potentially. Every Jew is potentially oh, in the yeah, case. Yeah. So, right. we're certainly not talking about tzaddikim. We're talking about every well, single Jew. Oh, I know that. I'm just saying that a, a tzaddik is, a, is an example of someone who has perfected that. Correct, correct. The tzaddik has perfected it, but the ability is equal within every single Jew. 
And that, that is why our sages have said that even when a single individual sits and engages in the Torah, the Shekhinah rests on him. And on each gathering of ten Jews, the Shekhinah rests, and let's underline the next word of that, of the last word of that paragraph, always. Wow. Over here we have just expressed some amazing points. <coughs> number one. Let's read the two footnotes, number three and four. <coughs> Rabbi Chalafta, the son of Dosa of the village of, Chan of Hananiah, would say, Rabbi Chalafta ben Dosa, Mikfar Hananiah, he would say, Ten people who sit together and occupy themselves with Torah. The Divine Presence rests among them. Uh, Vicky, in your, on the paper that you had, it's number four. It's number three. Thank you. Sure, sure. This, this is my... Uh... Fantastic. <laughs> so the, the Pirkei Avos, Ethics of the Fathers, continues... And it says, from where do we know that such is the case, even with a single individual? If one Jew is sitting alone in his home, in the Pearl District, or in uh, Rhododendron, wherever we live, and you, learn, and you learn, Hashem is with you, how do I know this? My father, he was for two years in Melbourne, Australia. And at one point, he went to visit an island right off of Australia. Tasmania. It's, that is called Tasmania. It was slipping my mind. And he said, literally, Tasmania is like, when you talk about far off, that's where Tasmania is. Meaning it's Australia, and then an island. And he goes to Shul there. Did they have a shul? There is a shul, sure. An old community there. You'll unbelievable. The next stop heading south is Antarctica. <laughs> he, he, he goes to the shul and the shul reads. What does the shul read on top? It reads the, it reads the pasuk we're going to quote now. Very applicable for that place. Every place where I have my, ma my name mentioned, even in Tasmania, right? Every place where I have my name mentioned, I shall come to you and bless you. Wherever in the world you may be, you mention God's name, Hashem says, I am coming. It's in the singular. So every single person on his own, when he learns Torah, Hashem comes. Okay, so now we know clearly that every single individual Jew is a vessel for godliness. Because if not, then we couldn't come and say every Jew when he learns Torah, Hashem comes. If Hashem comes from every Jew that learns Torah, obviously every Jew is a vessel for godliness. Do you agree, Melissa? Of course. Good. But here comes the amazing point. Right now here we have more than ten people. And when it comes to ten people... I'd like to see if you could find the, the difference between one person learning and ten. And for the group of ten, it's really a story, an amazing story, that the Talmud and Tractate Sanhedrin shares with us. This is now number four in your handout. The emperor said to Rabbi Gamliel, the emperor turns to Rabbi Gamliel and he tells him, so you guys think, you Jewish people, you think that every ten people Hashem comes to visit you, uh-huh? That's what you think. He says... <laughs> How many Hashems are there? How many Shekhinahs are there? You're, you're, you're downgrading Hashem. Wait, you think He goes here and here and here? How could Hashem be everywhere? 
So Rabbi Gamliel, he calls a servant of the emperor. And he taps him on the neck and he says, Why does the son enter into the Caesar's house? The servant says, What do you mean? The sun shines throughout the whole world. So can, turns Rabbi Gamliel now to the emperor, right following the statement of his servant, and he says, If the sun, which is one of the countless myriads of the servants of the Holy One, blessed be he, shines on the whole world, how much more the Shekhin of the Holy One, blessed be he himself. There's no contradiction. Just like the sun could shine everywhere and shine in many different places, so too the Shekhinah can. Good, a good analogy. But what do we see from this analogy? What is the difference between Hashem coming to one person and Hashem coming to ten? Please, share with me. It's amazing. And it's stressed in the last word of the paragraph we read, the word I told you to underline. What word did I say to underline? Always. Hashem comes to ten people always, whether or not they're learning Torah. If you have ten people, a minion, what's a minion? Ten people, ten men come together, for a minion it's ten men. For a minion it's ten men because men have a task in this world and women have a task in this world. <laughs> but whenever ten Jewish people gather, godliness comes. Whether or not they're studying Torah. Yeah, but, yes. but, you know, ten minutes earlier you said God comes even for one person. Ah, but the difference is one person has to learn Torah. Okay. If one person learns Torah, we said then Hashem comes to you. But if you have a minion of people, you have ten people, Hashem is there whether or not you're learning Torah. Okay. Hashem is amongst you. Why? Because a Jew is a vessel for godliness. Right. So Hashem comes within you. The person, the person studying Torah is also a vessel for God, the single person. Correct. We learn from the spies. Actually, we learn from the negative. The Torah says regarding the spies, how do we know a minion? Do you know a, a minion we learned from the spies? How many spies were there that went away? There were 12 spies. How many of them went against Hashem? Ten. ten. And the Torah calls these ten spies an Ada, congregation. From here we learn that a minion, that a group of people is ten. So, you know, it's interesting that the Torah uses not the best group of people, to institute a minion, which is a good holy thing. Fair observation. Fair observation. But what we do have clear is that ten people, just being a group of ten, have the ability to draw godliness within them. So in summary we've said, Hashem, godliness only comes into something that is allowing God within it. Anything else, if it's not godliness, it's the other side. So then it's already belonging to the other group. But we've said angels are a vessel for godliness. And not only they're a vessel, they're actively serving God. And, and Jewish people, we have a soul that is willing to give up our soul, to be, that is willing to um, give itself up if someone would come and press it to be a Jew. And that is a an aspect which reveals to us that Hashem, that we're all a vessel for godliness. One person has to learn, ten people just being together are a vessel for godliness. The Rebbe, he was in Germany for a while, 
And before the Nazis were so active, um, before they started doing what they were actually, what they had planned to do, they started going around asking people their religion. And at one point, they came to the house of the Rebbe, and they asked, what religion are you? And his wife answered, and she said, we're Orthodox. And the Nazis understood that she was Orthodox Greek, could that be? Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox. And that's, they were, that's the two worlds of Western Christian, well, of Christianity. The Western is the Roman Church, the Eastern is the Greek Church. They wrote that down. They wrote down Greek Orthodox. And when the Rebbe came home, so his wife shared what had happened. And the Rebbe told his wife, he said, look, I don't know, but I'm going to walk back into their office and I'm going to clarify that we are Jewish. Not even on their papers, we are Jewish. And he went back and thank God a whole miracle how he escaped um, from the Nazis. But nonetheless, even on a paper, he wasn't willing to, to be identified as something else. Geek is Greek without the R. <laughs> so, we all we all are vessels for godliness. Now let's talk about the other side. Now we've defined godliness as something that is nullified to him. However, that which does not surrender itself to God, but is a separate thing by itself. If you think, it is me. You know, we say regarding Paro, we say, Paro said, Kochi ve'otsem yadi. It's my power, my strength. This Nile, it's such a beautiful, it's my... Does everyone know about Paro? Paro said he's a god. One of the things, though, about a god is you don't have to relieve yourself. God doesn't have to go to the bathroom. So what did Paro do? Every morning he would go to the Nile River and take a bath. And while he was there, he would do whatever he needed. And that is why you'll see Hashem sent Moshe, whenever he would give a message to Paro, at times he would go in the morning and meet him by the Nile. (laughs) To let Paro know, you're you're not exactly a god. But the op... Neither is the river. Neither is the river. But anything that does not surrender itself to God is a separate thing by itself and does not receive its vitality from the holiness of the Holy One. Blessed be He. If you're not going to be allow Hashem within you, if you're, if you're not going to be nullified to God, so then Hashem's not going to come in. How are you living? Not from the very inner essence and substance of the holy, holiness itself. You don't live from the essence of Hashem but from behind its back. What does it mean that you get from behind its back? If someone comes to you asking for money, asking for tadaka, there's two ways you could give it to him. One is you could give him a big smile and say, it's my biggest privilege to give you t- and wh- whatever the amount is. And the other one is you could say, here, take the money and get out of here. If someone goes ahead and he gives a dollar with a smile, He's accomplished more than someone that gives a million dollars behind his back like that. Not only that, but the Torah has very harsh things to say about the guy who gave a million dollars with a negative word. Better that we give nothing but smile than give negative energy. 
So, when we're doing something holy, so then Hashem gives us with a smile. He's giving us Himself. But when we do something that is against Hashem, He's like, you know what, just take that energy, but get out of here. Uh, stay alive, but, but I don't want to have to do with this. So how, how do you define that energy? So we're going to learn that in order for Hashem to give energy to something against Him, there's four series of contractions that need to happen. Hashem can't, you can't, it's not like you could just have evil. In order for holiness to now empower the opposite of holiness, it has to go through, it goes behind its back, as it were, descending degree by degree, one piece by another piece, slowly, like a funnel, it's coming lower and lower, through myriads of degrees. That's the first thing. Good, that's step number one, is that it has to go lower and lower. Now, lowering of the world, that's step number two. Step number three, by way of cause and effect, we're not going to get into what each of these mean, but, but I want to stress again, and innumerable contractions, that there is four separate series of steps that the godliness has to go through until the light and life is so diminished through repeated contractions that it be, can be compressed and incorporated in a state of exile, as it were. For godliness to go into something unholy is taking God and sticking Him in exile. Right? That's exactly what we're doing. God wants to be revealed. And when we do something unholy, we're taking God and we're sticking Him inside of we're sticking Hashem in, in exile. Within that separated thing, we take, we're taking godliness and we're putting Him into whatever negative act we've done. And this energy that we've created gives it vitality and existence, ex nihilo. Without the godliness, there won't be this negative energy. Nothing evil can exist, nothing bad could exist without godliness in it. How does it get that godliness? By someone doing something unholy. By someone doing something unholy, he's taking godliness and putting it into something unholy. So that it does not revert to nothingness and non-existence as it, were, as it was before it was created. Galus HaShechina, right. So, holiness is a vessel for godliness. The opposite of holiness is anything else that we do. But remember, when we do something, we're, we're not just going on our own. It's not like one day we could come to Shul and the next day we could go to a bad place and do something inappropriate. No. Remember, if we, if we do something inappropriate, Hashem is still with us. Hashem is always with us. And we're dragging Him there and we're exile. We're putting Hashem, we're putting godliness into exile. Why? Why does Hashem allow us to make these, make these mistakes? What's the answer? Free choice. That's the basis of, of creation. One of the 13 principles of faith. If Hashem wants us to have free choice. Without free choice. Well, He wants us to have free choice so that we'll ultimately make the right choice. Fantastic. Handout number five. Look, let's look at number five in your handout. We quote from Deuteronomy 13, 15, and 19. As Hashem says, Behold, I have set before you today life and good, evil, death and evil. 
you shall choose life. Hashem says, yes, I'm giving you good and unfortunately there's the opposite of good. But then Hashem says, choose life, please, I'm begging you. Just like that analogy I gave you before with that child of the prince. His, king, his father, the king, gave him a choice. But his father is going to be very mad at him if he's going to make a mistake. And the same exact thing here. Hashem is telling us, you got a choice. I can't force you, but please don't make a mistake. Please don't do the opposite of good. Are there any questions? Yeah. <laughs> Let's summarize and then we'll see if there's any questions. <laughs> Hashem created good and Hashem created the opposite of good to allow us to have free choice. The opposite of good every time we do something we are dragging Hashem within it. But we are vessels for godliness. Godliness is not foreign to us. We're not foreigners. We are all vessels for Hashem. And just by gathering together, just by us sitting here right now, Hashem is with us. If we would just be drinking water and having popcorn together, Hashem would still be with us. There's ten people here. So we're not foreign. It's not a foreign idea. It's not something that is impossible. This is a task, a mission, that is realistic. It is troubling. And we'll get to how, to how to control it. But nonetheless, it is realistic. I'd like to conclude with one, with the last, next paragraph, three lines. It's a tough three lines. But it's the reality of life. Consequently, this world, with all its contents, is called the world of Klipot and Sitra Achara. Hmm. Therefore, all mundane affairs are severe and evil, and wicked men prevail, as explained in Eitz Chaim, Portal 42, end of chapter 4. This is a tough reality. We live in the lowest of low. We live in the dumps. You have Atsilos. You have the world where Hashem is one with you. You have Berea, the second world where there's a beginning of creation, but nonetheless, godliness is shining within you. You have Yitzira, Asiya. We live in the physical Asiya. That means we live in the lowest of low. And in this world we live in, godliness is completely concealed. You don't wake up and see Hashem. Hashem is concealed. Remember, for thousands of years, until Avram Avinu came, people didn't know Hashem existed. They were serving idols. Avram, after much thinking, he finally was the first one. He recognized, Echod Avram, Avram was the first. He recognized there's a creator. But Hashem is not revealed in this world, He's concealed. The only way to reveal Hashem in this world is through Torah and mitzvot. And now we'll understand why the wicked prosper. There's many answers why the wicked prosper. 
some of them are fluffy as we say. Right now in time we're learning straight up. You know why they prosper? Because evil prospers. In this world evil is a natural effect that we see. You don't see when you look at, if, if you read the news at times, it's, it's, not, it's not like, imagine the news would only be positive. I don't know how many people would buy it, right? <laughs> we, we read, if you see what's going on in this world, it's so filled with negativity. Naturally, evil prospers. What, is pro- what does prosper mean? Because you shouldn't, when you pray to prosper, that should be a spiritual prosperity. And that's not something... You wouldn't be called successful. Very, very good. Of course. Thank you, Gershon. Of course, wicked prospering doesn't mean that the wicked are holy people. God forbid. We're saying on a physical level, you look at some of the richest people in this world and they don't look like the biggest tzaddikim. If you open up Forbes, what's the Forbes 500? What's it called? The 500 biggest companies, the 500 most profitable. You're not going to see the 500 biggest tzaddikim. If you're looking for a tzaddik, you don't open that up and say, number one, the richest man in the world, he is the biggest tzaddik. No. Why? Because in this world, the wicked could prosper. So what are you saying? That Trump's all? But, but again, that doesn't mean that wicked wins. No, no, no. Evil is not winning. At the end of the day, remember, when we do a mitzvah, so first of all, there's, of course, tremendous reward that Hashem has for all of us. The biggest reward being we're connecting with Hashem. But on a simple level, this world is naturally full of evil and it's our responsibility to illuminate it. And the the coolest thing about darkness is that it has no substance. Right? One flame could illuminate an entire room. It may not be the biggest illumination, but nonetheless, the smallest flame, darkness will run away. Darkness has no substance. Evil has no substance. We learn in Kabbalah, evil is like a balloon. All you need to do is pop it. You give a little poke, and it's gone. It's it's history. So when you look at this world, it looks like it's full of evil, and naturally it is. But what we need to do is we need to just give it that pop. We need to come put on tefillin, light Shabbos candles. We have to take off challah from our bread, whatever it is. And that's going to pop the evil. So let's conclude with, with these points. Naturally, the world is full of negativity. So when we started off the, the, the class saying that we're going to learn today what is holiness and what is the definition of the opposite of holiness, holiness is something that allows Hashem inside. If something does not allow Hashem inside of it, it is not only it is not holy, it's the opposite of holiness. And when we do that act, we are drawing Hashem, contraction by contraction, piece by piece, into that negative thing. And we concluded that although in this world it looks like wicked is prospering, there is some truth, and physically it looks like that, but of course it's not, that's not the reality. Because that's our task. Hashem wants us to work hard. But at the end of the day, there's a master plan, and once we fulfill that, we're going to have the ultimate era 
of Mashiach, something that we'll see all of our accomplishments. To conclude, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, it says, the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. Which means, naturally, we translate it, the reward of one mitzvah is you do another mitzvah. But the ultimate translation is, the reward of a mitzvah is that you did the mitzvah itself. The reward of a mitzvah is that you've connected to Hashem. What could be better than that? You lit Shabbos candles, Hashem has come inside of you. You went ahead and you davened Myrav, Hashem has come inside of you. You went ahead and you had respect for your parents, you went ahead and you, had re- you, you uh, connected with an older person. You went ahead and you, whatever it was, every act we do, the biggest reward we have is that we're connecting with Hashem. And that is what we say at the end of Pirkei Yavitz. Hashem wanted to reward us, and therefore He gave us so many mitzvahs. We hear people complain, they say, Judaism has 613 mitzvahs, it's the hardest, it's hardest thing ever. It's foolish. The biggest reward Hashem ever gave us is that every small thing we do is a reward. We get rewarded for going ahead and helping an older person in the store put a cucumber inside of their basket. That's a, we get rewarded for that. We get rewarded every time we stand up in, in, in the presence of a Torah scholar. We get rewarded for going ahead and uh, not killing someone. We get rewarded every time we don't go ahead and steal. Every time, we, we, every time that we don't go ahead and kidnap, we're being rewarded. Is that tough, Yishai? That's yeah, quite easy. I hope so. <laughs> so when we say that, that we have so many commands, on the contrary. Imagine I told you, for every mitzvah you do, you get a million dollars. You want Hashem to give us a lot more, right? <laughs> okay, thank you very much.